If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Last week and the week before, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and um, the Israelite people who had been in battle and had brought the Ark to try to win uh, the battle against the Philistines. And instead, they were defeated. The Philistines took the Ark. Uh, and, uh, and what we talked about last week was what happened then, and uh, that, that the glory of the Lord departed Israel, and what that means, that the, the, like the presence of God, the, the weight of God himself had departed from this place, not because he lived physically in the ark, but because that was meant to be really a symbol of his connection with his people, and they had kind of abused Uh, the privilege of being his people and how they handled this battle. Uh, God had become kind of a last resort for them, sort of a good luck charm more than anything else. And so as the ark was taken to uh, the Philistine land, um, basically what we also saw was the the idol of the Philistine god uh, falling down when it was put next to the ark, God striking people down there with like boils, and all kinds of horrible things happening. And as a result, they put the ark back on a, they put it on a cart uh, with some cattle, and they just kind of smacked them and, and sent it in the right direction. No people even would go with it. They threw in golden tumors and golden mice because they were literally just trying to guess whatever might appease this God because they wanted to make sure that he did not, you know, see them in a bad light. And so, uh, and there's nothing more random I think you could put inside of something than golden tumors and golden mice. They were just like, whatever. There were tumors, let's do tumors. Mice, sure, why not, you know? So they filled it up and they sent it. And and it comes back and it is, uh, and it is, it is brought back to God's people. And that's sort of where we are now in this account. The ark of the Lord has returned uh, to Israel, but that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going back to being good. In fact, they're going back to being not good at all, and that's where we kind of pick up this morning. We're going to read the first couple verses of this passage and kind of talk through it as we go. Uh, The first two verses of 1 Samuel say this, And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You can just stop there for a second. So, uh, the ark is, uh, is put somewhere, and someone is meant to watch over it, and then what we read is for the next 20 years, the people of Israel lament after the Lord, it says. Now, uh, the question that a lot of scholars ask, uh, because it's very important, is, is, okay, when does this 20 years happen? How does it fit into the story, the account of what we're reading here? And, uh, and it's easy to kind of misunderstand the way that it's worded when it gets translated to English, but the way that uh, the Hebrew culture would sort of communicate a sequence of events, it's pretty clear that what happened here is the ark is placed 
in this, uh, in, this, in this place where they put it, it's, it's sort of installed in this place. There's a priest that's meant to look after it. And then what happens is 20 years passes as Samuel himself uh, sort of grows up um, as this priest that God has finally called him to be and installed for Israel. He's their judge, their priest. He's the one left to lead them. And as he's led for these 20 years, the people are miserable. Life is not good in Israel. And as a result of 20 years of things not going well for them, things not going well in whatever way they don't go well, uh, that leads them collectively as a people to finally lament after the Lord. Lamenting is wailing and crying out after the Lord saying, God, help us, please. So what is it? What's wrong? What is it that's causing this? Well, up until this point in Samuel, we've read about a couple of things that seem like pretty good. Uh, uh, the, the things that you could point to and say, you know, I think it might be this. I think it might be this. The first is, is the, the, the armies of people who seem to be against them, right? Uh, maybe life in Israel is so bad and people are so miserable because of the armies, the enemies that are, that, are, that are outside of their territory, their borders. It turns out this promised land where they, that they've been given is a promised land that a lot of people want to be in. Not just them. The Philistines want it. And so they continually, as they are bigger, uh, a bigger group of people, the Israelites are outnumbered by the Philistines. They're out, they're, uh, their technology and weapons are better. There's the constant threat of outside force. And you could imagine what it would do to a people to know that there is an enemy that is constantly wanting in. An enemy that outnumbers you. An enemy that is more powerful than you. The most obvious thing to ask about what's wrong in Israel at this time is, well, how about the fact that there's these enemies right here outside their gates? But what happens uh, when they defeat the Israelites, the Philistines? What happens when they steal the ark and they take it away? God just brings it right back. What you see is that God doesn't have to, it's not hard for God to deal with the Philistines. It's not hard for God to smite these people and to conquer them, if that's his desire. What you see is that God is, is uh, the protector of the Israelites. In fact, the covenant that he has with them is a pretty simple one to understand, right? If you are my people then I will be your God. And what that means is that you will have this unique uh, relationship with a unique God that is different from all the other ones out there, all the idols and gods and everything that all these other people worship. And they're going to look at you as a people and they're going to see a God who, who provides for you in a way that, that, that you have abundance that you shouldn't have, a God who protects you. You have success and victory and security that you wouldn't otherwise have. And the whole point of that is that people would look at you and they would say exactly what they say, which is the God of the Israelites who brought them out of Egypt, the God of the Israelites who delivered them in battle, right? It's very clear. God's made it very clear to his people. I am your strength. I am your fortress. I am your stronghold. I am your shield. I am the weapons. I am the chariot. I am the fighter. I will protect you, 
you have nothing to fear from these people outside your borders because I, God, am your refuge. So no, things in Israel, even though we read about these enemies up till now, they're not really the problem. They're just kind of there in the background, characters that are playing as part of the story. So then you go, so then why then uh, are they still miserable? What's wrong in Israel that's making life so bad that after 20 years, even with the ark there, they are lamenting collectively and wailing to God? Collectively, all these people have finally cried out to God together. How bad would it have to be for everyone to do that? Well, if it's not the enemies then what is it? Well, maybe it's these leaders that they've had, right? Because that's one of the other things we keep reading about here in Samuel's. We read about these priests and the sons of the priests and these guys who clearly are, it says, going astray, don't care about the Lord, don't care about the things of God. These guys are, uh, these guys are selfish. These guys are worldly. These guys are lazy. And they are abusing the power that they have. Can it not, is it not obvious that the, uh, the corrupt nature of their leaders, the, the ineptitude, the, the, the mediocrity, the foolishness and the failure of their leaders is what's causing this problem here in Israel, would make life so bad that the people would collectively cry out to God. No, that's not even what the problem is. You know, one of the common misunderstandings about the Bible is that it's full of amazing leaders. And that's not actually what the Bible shows us. The Bible shows us a lot of mediocre leaders, at best, who are used by God to do incredible things. You cannot take the, the, the things that we read about in the Bible and apply them in leadership principles that will uh, that will. Uh, show wide, like a, an amazing amount of success in the boardroom that will, that will show, that will translate directly over into the halls of government and, and that you could take these principles. You cannot just take what Jesus did and take what the leaders did even and say that happened because those people were so good at leading other people. No, God in fact, we read this, Paul, one of the, you know, we consider to be one of the best leaders in the New Testament. He puts it this way, and it's, and it's perfect. It's so clear. He says in 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. At their day and age, in their time, uh, what made you a good leader was your intellect, your noble birth, or the power that you had accumulated through wealth and other means, respect by people. And what he says is he says, uh, as he's explaining how the, how the gospel and the kingdom of God works, is he's saying God is not a God who relies so much on an individual or a few individuals to get done what he wants done. And what we see here is that very thing. Because what does God do? He says, I'll deal with them. And he does. He deals with the bad leaders. He deals with those. Basically, what you see is that God does not hold the people responsible for even the actions of these corrupt leaders. What he does is he just gets rid of the leaders. 
What he says to Eli in the beginning of this of, of 1 Samuel is he says, your household's done with this. And I'm going to raise up a new leader. I'm going to raise one up, and then he's going to do this thing. And it won't be because all the people voted, voted him in and decided that they liked him the most. I'm going to empower this person, Samuel. And then he's going to have the responsibility of standing before me and knowing whether or not he did a good job. Is it, is it the leaders, the people that are leading them who are clearly corrupt, and that's why things are bad in Israel? No, it's not even that. And so what is it? We read on in 1 Samuel 7, 3 through 4, the next two verses, what the people do, and that tells us what the problem was. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and they served the Lord only. The problem was this. It was not the enemies outside, the threat. It was not the leaders, the people they were under. The problem was them. They didn't have a Philistine problem. They didn't have a leadership problem. They had a God-Israelite problem. The people had wandered away from God. And it was because of that that they were miserable. It was because of that that they were suffering. And after years and years, the, 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 the consequences of not having a relationship with this God, the consequences of what happened when you do wander from God in your heart, they, they still offered sacrifices. They still had the tabernacle. They still had a priest. They still had the law. They still would tell you, we love God. God is great. We're his people. They still had all of these things in place. And yet, they had wandered from God. And you have to look at this and go, okay, so were they just so incredibly bad at seeing what was obvious? I mean, it's so obvious to us, maybe, when we look at this. It says that they worshiped other gods and things like that. Is it possible that the last conclusion that we ever seem to find ourselves reaching when we're facing a problem is this one, the question that's hardest to ask? What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? I mean, is this not the last question that we'll usually find ourselves asking when things are going badly? Yes. It's a scary question. Wait a second. What if after all of these things that are, that are happening, if, all, if the difficulty, what if I'm wrong? What if there's something going on within me? There's something in between me and God that is, uh, that is the cause 
of the suffering that is the cause of the lament, right? They didn't want to ask that question, and we can look at them and go, why wouldn't they ask that question? Because none of us want to ask that question. Because being in sin, because needing to repent, which is what the people ultimately did, and that's how we know what was wrong. It took them 20 years with the ark still there before they together as a people realized, hey guys, I think we know what the problem is here. The problem is us. We need help. We need God. And so it says that as they approached Samuel, he led them to repentance. Now you've got to figure for 20 years, Samuel is, 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 is uh, being uh, the person God's called him to be. But that doesn't mean that he can lead a nation of people to repentance if they don't feel that, right? If they don't want it, if they don't believe it, right? In fact, he probably started out going, uh, yeah, I think the last thing that I'm going to do is just start calling everybody out on this. Maybe he did. Who knows? I'd like to think that right before Eli dropped dead, he said to Samuel, whatever you do, don't, don't change anything. Don't do anything in the first year, right? Because that's the number one rule of leadership when you go into something new, right? Just nothing, you know, like that. Maybe his first 20 years, who knows? I think probably Samuel was telling people again and again, as carefully as he could have, and as, and as clearly as he could have, to turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. That's why they knew where to go. That's why they knew to go to him with their lament, was because he would lead them to repentance. And so finally, after that much time, they stopped worrying about the Philistines they stopped worrying about and blaming things and all that stuff on other people and maybe how it caused them and led them and influenced them. And they just said, what if I'm wrong? Can you guys go back one slide? This process of repentance begins with searching ourselves. We read about it in Psalm 139. The psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The way for a believer in, in Christ, a follower of God, a member of his kingdom, a Christian, the way forward is always through this. God, search me and know my heart. Be there anything in me? Any grievous way that I may be living, walking, believing, and if so, lead me into the way everlasting. Because hope is always going to be through that. Now, you can't do this if you have to be perfect. You can't ask this question, what if I'm wrong, if you can't handle being wrong, or you can't, your life is built upon, your worldview is even built upon you being right about things, your accomplishments, your intellect, your uh, reputation. What is one of the first things that we give up when we ask the question, honestly, what if I'm wrong? Well, I don't know that we give it up, but we, we immediately put at risk our reputation. Right? We say, well, wait a second. How will it look? even just to me. So what he leads them through 
is this process of repentance. And realizing that it's you, it's not all these other outside things is a hard realization to make, but it's an important one. And so he leads them through this process that we just read about. And And the first step of it that he he told them, what what he led them through doing was this. He said, you guys are going to have to let go of these things. What we read was, um, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, they came to him and they lamented collectively and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather together and we're going to talk to God. What their leader did, which is the role of the leader, was to intercede to be the bridge He didn't bear all the responsibility of this. He interceded and he was the bridge. And he said, then I'm going to do what I'm here to do, which is I'm going to bring you before the Lord and I'm going to help you be right with God. So he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And it says, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now that word judged, it means sort of to govern the people. And in this context, what it means is he finally began doing the thing that God gave them a priest and a judge to do. Sure, a judge could rule over them. He could govern them up to a certain point, but he couldn't truly intercede for these people until they were ready to repent. And so he does now, for the first time in 20 years probably, the thing that God has raised him up to do. It says that this process it's describing, this process of repentance, of of, of fasting and pouring out water and saying out loud, we have sinned against the Lord. These are not easy words to say. Ultimately, all sin is sin against God. Ultimately, uh, it is not even about as much the sin against other people, the effects it has on people, as it is first and foremost a sin between us and our Creator. Because sin ultimately comes from the same place every time. It is a lack of believing in who God says He is, a lack of trusting in who God says He is. There are so many ways that we can fall into this. That our lack of belief and faith leads us to believe things and do things and act in certain ways and want things and allow things to take a bigger place in our life and our heart than they ever should take. We all have been in this place. This place of, of, of needing to come before the Lord and saying to him, God, uh, I have sinned against you. I see that. God, I want to be right with you. More than anything else, 
more than the circumstances, more than fixing all the problems, more than making things better, more than getting me out of the hole that I'm in. I want to be right with you, God, which is where, which is why this starts with first this letting go. He leads the people through a process of first repenting, of letting go of this thing that they have held on to. The, the process of uh, repentance, this word, uh, return to the Lord, he, he says that to them. He says, I'll, I'll pray for you, and I'll pray that you'll be able to, that you'll basically return to God. The word that he uses here in the passage that we read before for return, it's, it, it literally means, you, you know, you're going back to something that you already, where you already were. It's not just about turning away from something bad. It's about going back to something that you originally were doing, go back to a place that you were. There's no better a, a way to understand what it is to come back to God in repentance than this idea of going home. There's no greater, uh, I think, example of the gospel in the New Testament, it seems, than the parable of the prodigal son, as we call it. But it's really the parable of the gracious father, because there's two sons. I don't know if you've ever been in that experience where you're on vacation, and it's just been an amazing vacation, and now it's time to go home. But that is not fun, right? Most guys I know, they just ride off the whole last day, like... They get up and it's like, let's go. Uh, I just got to start getting, packing stuff up, getting stuff ready to go, whatever, you know, like, because in my mind, this is it. It's over, right? If I know that we're going to be home by the end of today at some point, then in my mind, vacation's already over. But, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, having this amazing time of rest and enjoyment, not having all the regular junk in life that makes things difficult. <sighs> And just like leaving and going, man, I really wish I could do that forever, right? I really wish that I could just have another week, have another couple days. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to real life. I don't want to go back to all the chores and, and, and all the work and the monotony of the responsibility and the stress or whatever it is, right? I don't want to go back to all those things. Normally, going home is a positive thing. But for many of us, this idea of returning to God, of going back to where we came from to begin with, feels more like kind of the begrudging return back after a great time off. Something that we don't exactly look forward to, but, you know, we know we have to do. Can't be on vacation forever, right? Can't do it forever. But that's nothing like what we read about in the parable of this gracious father. That son is returning home knowing, not that he was on vacation having a great time and wished he could spend his life that way, but is returning home knowing that hope and life is found there and that what has caused him to turn back is realizing, what if I'm wrong? I am wrong. And so going home for him was the greatest thing that he could do. 
Even the son, the older son who slaved away for the father, ultimately at the end of his interaction with his father complaining about, oh, I've done so many good things and, and yet, you know, you still welcome this other son with such excitement and happiness and joy. Ultimately, he finds himself in a place basically of the father saying, you know, come home, like just be with me here. Stop slaving, stop serving, stop trying to be great and stop trying to prove all these things about yourself because that's not what it's about to be my son and to be a part of this family. He too is invited home, maybe for the first time in his mind. What a tremendously joyful and freeing experience that is to get to return back to this place that gives you life after wandering away. Repentance is hard because it, it means first acknowledging that there's something wrong with us when it is so easy to find things wrong everywhere else, right? You'll always be able to find someone who will agree with you that something else with someone else and some other thing with the world is what's wrong in your life or the thing that's leading to what's going on in your life or the thing that's leading you to the way you're feeling or, or the things that you're struggling with. Uh, we don't like asking that question, what if I'm wrong? And, and then when we begin to feel that sense of, I think I am wrong. I think there's repentance that needs to happen here. That return back to God isn't to feel like one that we do out of obligation knowing, man, that was a pretty, pretty great time away though, but you know, I got to go back to God. That's probably what's better for me. Is that we return home knowing that life is found here and it wasn't found there. And so the first thing that you have to do is, is let go of that thing, of that stuff, of that belief, of that, of that fear, of that need to control. The first thing you do is let go, which is what he leads the people in doing. The next thing is to look up. You see, their view of God has gotten very small. They put him in this box. And ultimately, repentance, like I said, is not just about turning away from stuff. It is about seeing God and being with God again, turning to face him again, heading in the direction where he is again. And, and to be honest, all these other things are just these different turns and ways that we can face and wrong ways that we can find ourselves going. But the answer is always the same. It is to let go and to look up and to see God and to allow ourselves to see who he really is in all of his glory. Because the glory of God, the, the weightiness of God, like we said last week, displaces and pushes things out. It actually makes room in our life for him. So if we focus on God and see who he is, then we actually will begin to experience those things that we struggle with being pushed out. There just isn't room for them when God takes the place that he is meant to take in my life and in my heart. I cannot focus on both those things at once. If all I do is focus on letting go of things and, and I never look up and see really uh, the reason that I'm doing this, where the life is found, then I will pick those things up again right away, which is what we so often do.
And as they look up, what they see is what we always find. As they begin to see God anew, they see him bigger than they saw him before. Because what happens after they repent, as they now face their enemies, the Philistines, yet again, that's kind of the litmus test for them. The Philistines aren't the problem. They're just the way that we see where their faith in God is at. In fact, in the next uh, chapter, we're going to see them asking God for a leader, which again is, is, is their way of showing where their faith really is. So as they've repented, after they've repented, we read, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They finally get it. Their fear is not, they're not addressing this fear and strategy. They're not trying to figure out what to do with the ark this time. They're simply saying to Samuel, lift us up to God because he is indeed bigger than the Philistines. So much of our life is spent with this thing, whatever the thing is in front of us that seems so scary. And the way that we know that we're looking up, that we're seeing how big God is, is that that thing gets less and less and less scary. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller because we simply see how big God is and we go, he's bigger than that. God is bigger than this thing that I'm afraid of, is he not? He is bigger than this thing that I don't understand right now, is he not? He is bigger than this thing that I feel enslaved to. That to me, honestly, nothing can be bigger or more powerful than that thing. And as they look up and they begin to see God anew, as they direct their heart to the Lord, they see how glorious he is. I was talking to um, Pastor Matt about this this week and um, just about this idea of, of, you know, what if, what if, like, you just, uh, when things were going bad, when you were struggling with sin and needing to repent, what if uh, you just had to look at God anew? If you had to say, who am I seeing God to be? And he said, he said you know, the thing that I always think about when I, when I think about this idea of looking at God anew is Isaiah. And in Isaiah 6, where he is given a vision of the Lord, and he is brought in uh, to heaven uh, or the throne room of God, and what he encounters when he sees God. It is this incredible thing. I want to I read it real quick. all over the place. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each head had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is something about, and, and I mean, and, and, and just imagining this about, about being in this throne room and basically like this idea of the train of his robe, it's like he's seeing maybe like his feet at this point. Like that's what he's getting in his field of vision. About just the magnitude and the massiveness of God, the, the smoke and the, and, and the way that it is shaking everything around him, the very presence and power of God. And when you see this thing, when Isaiah sees this thing, all he can think of is, I'm not worthy, I am not worthy of this. Because he's getting just a glimpse of the gravity, the scale of who God is, how powerful he is. You see, we spend much of our time focused uh, with our eyes, gazing either out at all the distractions and the things that we're afraid of, or gazing inward. There's a slide. Can you guys go back to it? It's like a Martin Luther one. Um, it's before look up. Um, there, Martin Luther, the famous theologian, um, says in his commentary on Romans, as he comments on the sin of man and, and, and the nature of our hearts, is, and I can just read this to you guys, he says this, he says, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. Martin Luther describes man as being curved in upon himself. He says we use all things, even you give someone a Bible, basically he says. You give someone a Bible, and their tendency is going to be to use that for themselves. They're going to see only themselves in the Bible. They're going to see only what they what they like, like, what does this say for me and who I am and, and how this can make me better and bigger? And they will use it to almost expand who they are rather than actually see that God is bigger. This is Martin Luther saying in all the time that I've lived and been a theologian, what I've found, and he speaks mostly from his own experience of himself. He's like, I'm a theologian here. And the more I learn about the Bible, the more I learn about God, the more I try to follow Jesus, the more I'm aware of the fact that even the good things, especially the good things that I try to do, I'm doing these things for myself. Much of the time, our focus is out there. Much of the time, our focus is curved inwardly here. And because of how much that distorts us and how it messes up our way of seeing things, the answer in letting go is not to let go of things so that I can be better, and it's not to let go of things so that I can finally conquer the enemy or the thing I'm afraid of. It is to let go and to look up so that I can see who God is. I don't want this stuff in the way of 
me seeing who God is. Because that's what sin ultimately does in our lives. It's what it did for the people of Israel. He says to let go. He leads them through this repentance process of letting go of these things. Then he leads them through the process of, of looking up. And then ultimately, I'm going to skip to these here. He says basically, repeat. It's like a wash, rinse, repeat kind of thing. You let go, you look up, and then you do it again. And then tomorrow you do it again. And then after that you do it again. But this is basically what you do moving forward. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. You see, as these people repent, his instructions to them, Samuel's are very clear. He says you need to stop serving idols, get rid of the idols, knock them down, get rid of them. He says, uh, serve God alone and do so faithfully for the rest of your days. Uh, the, the crazy thing to everybody about this God of the Israelites was that he wanted people to worship only him. At this time, it was incredibly common to worship so many different gods. I mean, really the smart thing to do was to just add another god to your collection whenever you became aware of them. I mean, that's what a reasonable person did. You found out about a god of this thing who promised this, or you found out about this new culture, and they believe in this way of seeing the world. And that's, okay, yes, add that as well. And so what people did regularly, it's what the Philistines did when they got the ark. They brought it in and put it next to one of their gods. Because in their minds, there were, there were just endless amounts of these deities, of these forces out there, and they're kind of unpredictable, and so the more, the better. So people didn't have a problem with this God of the Israelites. Great, we'll take him too. But the Israelites, and then eventually the Christians, would be known as atheists compared to other people. Why? Because they believed in one God. There's as much emphasis on only this God, as there is on the God of the Israelites. And so what he says to them is he says, uh, you know, people at the time would have looked at them and not seen a disobedient group of people. They would have seen the same thing they see everywhere. The, the reason it's so hard to look inwardly and say, what if I'm wrong, is because usually our lives look very similar to the lives of people all around us. And the last thing that we're going to do is expect something extreme of another person like, you know, only God. And so in the very same way, like, it wasn't that big of a deal that they had these poles up that they worshipped sometimes. They had these other idols that they, as they married people of these other cultures, and they let that influence the way that they worshipped and believed God. They didn't give up on the idea of God. They kept sacrificing. They kept the law. They didn't give up on the idea of God. They would have said for 20 years and before that, we're following God. I'm serving God. Love the Lord your God. You know, they had the things up in their house or whatever. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But it was right next to all the other stuff. 
And so what he says to them clearly is you have to get rid of all this other stuff and you have to serve God only. And that's the hard part. I mean, there's nothing worse than adding that word and after God. God calls his people to be a people of him alone. And yet so often, it's God and something else. Oh, I've got God in my life. Oh, I look to God. God is an important part of my life. I love God. I see the value of God, the need for God. But my life consists of God and these other things. It is God and my reputation. It is God and my career. It is God and providing. It is God and security. It is God and being healthy. It is God and family. It is God and country. We tack things on saying God's there. And what we find is a massive group of people who agree with us when you tack things on to God. No one disagrees with people believing in God and other things. The rub comes when we proclaim that it is God alone who brings us life. And so Samuel would go around to the people and they would regularly repent. They would regularly offer sacrifices, not just to follow the law. They would regularly say, what if I'm wrong? And they would let go. And they would regularly look up to God. And Samuel would help remind them of just how big this God is that they love. This can seem like such a discouraging, regular, daily process to live in. That doesn't sound any fun. Repenting, being wrong all the time, right? That doesn't sound fun at all. How could Jesus say things like, um, um, my, my, my burden is easy, my, my, the, the burden that I give those who follow me is a light one, it is an easy one, when it consists of this. It's almost as though uh, Jesus is saying that these things that we repent of are the burdens in our lives, and that he leads us to a place where we we can finally be in an environment where it's safe to be wrong about things because we're not actually depending on how right we are. That as much as I think it's good for me to have a good reputation, to be somebody who knows that I've been able to follow the rules well, who knows that I've been able to do the right things, that that's not what I'm depending on in my relationship with God. That what Jesus is a reminder to me of constantly is that it is actually in letting go of those things that I recognize and I get to live in the power of him, that I get to experience the love of God and I get to experience uh, the freedom from the burden of all these things, including the fear of the enemy that's right there at the gates all the time. Theologians, uh, and Martin Luther really coined this phrase, I guess, he talked a lot about two different theologies that a person can live by, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. And the theology of glory, we like that one, by the way. That's the one that we like. 
He says the theology of glory is basically that like, uh, that as a person follows God, they are glorified. Their life is glorified. It, it, it seems it gets better in a sense. This is how, uh, and there are aspects of scripture that teach us various things that, that, that definitely there are ways that following God uh, make our life better. Uh, first and foremost, the fact that it gives us life. But what Martin Luther was constantly speaking against in his time was this idea of a theology of glory, and what he instead talked about was a theology of the cross. And his argument was that for a Christian to follow Christ, they're going to find themselves more often than not in situations where they feel most close to God and most free and most empowered and most alive when they have the least. One theologian puts it this way. He says, the theology of the cross contradicts the assumptions we normally have about life. It says that God is most reliably present, not in our strengths or our successes or the things we like best about ourselves. Rather, God is present and working in the world exactly in the place where a person is falling apart. We live in a world, and it's no surprise that we live in a world that is terrified of weakness, is terrified of suffering, and is terrified of this idea of things falling apart. We are the people who don't have to be afraid of that stuff because we recognize that it is actually when we see the parts of our lives that are most prone to not believe in God, that are most prone to doubt, to fear, to want things that are not good at all for us or bring us life. We are the people who are, who are called to, as we see those things, rather than run from them and hide from them and shove them under the rug and hope that we can make up for them by doing other better things, or maybe pointing to an enemy that's worse than the thing going on in our life, what we actually are is a people who can acknowledge those things, be honest, self-aware, and in doing so, allow God the opportunity to be real, to be alive, to be bigger than we thought he was before. And so as we walk away even from this, from now, as we see the Israelites at a point that is so good for them to be at. Unfortunately, it's not going to stay this way, of course. If there's anything that we do walking away from it, it is not to look at these people and say, man, how could they be so foolish? How could it be so hard for them to see it? But we say exactly that thing, but maybe a little different tone in our voice. How could it be so hard for them to see what was wrong? Because it's easy for us to see what's wrong in other people. It's easy for us to see the things they need to let go of. It is so difficult for us to see those things in our own lives. And so can we, even as we worship, even as we reflect now, can we ask God, can we feel safe enough in him to ask him, God, what if I'm wrong? 
And can we gaze upon him and allow the magnificence of who God is, the holiness, the glory, the weight of God, so fill our field of vision that nothing else matters, that we don't need those things, that we don't need to worry about those things. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can't really do this completely because it's only through a relationship with Jesus that you can live in him knowing that it's because of what Jesus did that makes us God's children. It's because of what Jesus did that makes him say to us, I know you screwed up, but come back home, come back to me. We, we can't enjoy freedom without that. And so if you're in that place, then there is the, the thing to do is to, to rec- in recognizing, and you know it, you don't need anybody to remind you or point out to you or, or highlight all the specific ways in your life that you may be struggling or realizing I might be wrong here. For you, probably the issue is you see these things pile up. It's just that you're like, there's nothing I can do about it, and I, I'm stuck with it. Come to Christ and accept his forgiveness and, ex- and, and begin to see how big God is, how much bigger he is than you ever thought he was before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you love us so much, that you love your people, the Israelites, so much, that regardless of what they do and how long they do it, Lord, you bring them back to you in repentance and love. God, if there is anyone here today who has not given their life to Christ, believed in the gospel, trusted in you, and asked you to forgive them of their sins. Lord, there is so much vulnerability and power in just asking that alone. God, would you forgive me? Lord, if there is anyone here who has not been able to utter those words to you in their life, I pray that they would know that they are here right now in this moment today because you are drawing them to you and calling them to say that very thing to you now. And if that is you and if you are in that place and you are aware and you do want and know that you need God's forgiveness, would you just pray this, Father, I know that you love me And I know that there are other things that take me away from you. That there are fears of enemies at the gates that dictate the things I do and make me do things I'm not proud of. That there are desires I have and things that control me in my life that I know don't need to be there, that I'm enslaved to. That I am curved in upon myself in such a way that I continue to see how much I love me more than others. God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? Would you welcome me home to you? And would you show me how big you are? It's in your name we pray, amen.